Well, uh, thanks for being here. Our goal each week in Theological Equipping is to teach people how to think Christianly, that is how to think biblically, and we apply that lens to various topics, and so we spent three years talking about systematic theology, and then last uh, semester we talked about worldview and apologetics and world religions, and then this semester we're uh, taking that same sort of focus and lens and we're directing it to the topic of social and political theology, and so what we want to talk about today is social justice, uh, or or justice in particular, and and then uh, whether or not that that actually aligns with some conceptions of social justice today. And so you'll probably notice if you're really interacting with culture on any level whatsoever, you're watching the news, you're on social media, whatever it might be, that uh, the language of justice is really prevalent uh, today. So you see it on NBA jerseys, you, you see it on their courts, uh, you, you uh, hear about it regarding the national anthem at football games, uh, you see it in political speeches, people are talking about justice and injustice, you see it in the riot, riots and protests for calls for reparations, for hashtags like Black Lives Matter or uh, hashtag Me Too or Believe Women, all of these are uh, at least ostensibly about Uh, justice. So justice is kind of the cultural buzzword today. You can't log on to Facebook or Twitter or CNN or uh, or Instagram and not see something about justice or injustice. So this is particularly relevant and important for us to consider uh, in the midst of the the current cultural context that we find ourselves. So what we want to do today is really try to bring a little bit of clarity to the issue by asking and answering five questions. That's it, five questions. Uh, Number one, what does the Bible say about justice? Number two, what is justice? Number three, what is social justice? Number four, what's the problem? And then five, where do we go from here? So let's begin with that first question. What does the Bible say about justice? And so I'm gonna just read a plethora of passages that all make this same point, and that is that God cares about justice, and so should God's people. God cares about justice, and so should God's people. Now, for the sake of time, I'm only gonna read seven passages, although you could take all of these away, and you could add seven more, and then you could take them away and add seven more, and you could do that again a number of times because this idea is so prevalent in Scripture. Uh, scripture is saturated with this idea of God's love and concern for justice. Look at our Deuteronomy 16, 19 through 20. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is given you. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, that's God, not Dwayne Johnson. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. The God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Isaiah 1, 16 through 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Uh, Plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah 9, 23 through uh, 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love 
and justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Amos 5.24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And Micah 6.8, which is uh, the one that's probably most often quoted whenever you see someone say that uh, Christians should do justice, uh, says, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before or with your God? So there you go. Should uh, Christians care about justice? Absolutely we should. Justice is an attribute of God himself. It's a characteristic of the kingdom and therefore Christians should be passionate about justice. Christians should be all about justice. Make no mistake about that. So if this is such a big deal in scripture and in the history of the church, what is justice? And that's a great question. In fact, as we'll see, that's kind of the elephant in the room on this particular conversation because how we define justice is going to determine how we do justice. So what is justice? How do we define it? I found this definition a while back, but I forget where I found it. So if the author happens to be listening, please don't sue me for plagiarism or something. But somebody who's probably smart said justice is rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accord with the righteous standards of the moral law of God. Let me read that again. It's in your notes also. Justice is rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accord with the righteous standard of the moral law of God. So on that basis, we see a few things that distinguish the biblical concept of justice from any sort of worldly imitation of justice that we might put forth. For example, biblical justice is truthful. Biblical justice is impartial. It's proportional and it is direct. And we're gonna consider each of those one attribute at a time. So let's look at justice being truthful. Isaiah 59, 14 through 15 says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. So notice that's the problem. But then look at the, uh, the reason for that. The cause is for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. So why is justice turned back? Because truth has stumbled in the public squares and truth is lacking. In other words, where there is no truth, there is no justice. You have to see that connection in scripture. No truth, no justice. Let me give you a few examples of this relationship between justice and truth that you see in scripture. This is just a few examples. We could give uh, dozens more. But you see this in, uh, in all of the laws regarding weights and measures. Uh, Leviticus 19, 35 through 36, you should do no wrong in judgment. That word mishpat is often translated as justice. In measures of length or weight or quantity, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just effa and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So you, you ever notice, you ever see a depiction of Lady Justice and how oftentimes she's holding scales What do weights and measures have to do with justice? Well, they're about truth. To deceive someone in some sort of economic exchange is to defraud them and thus to commit injustice against them. So that's one example of this relationship between justice and truth you see in scripture. Another one is in regards to bearing false witness. Why do we even today, as part of our justice system, why do we make people swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Because without it, we understand that justice is going to be perverted. Look at uh, scripture, Exodus 23, one through two, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. 
You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. So bearing a false witness, spreading a false report is a form of injustice. Speaking of false witness, look at uh, Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 19. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if a witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, notice this, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So did you catch that? If someone falsely accuses you of a crime, then they should be punished with the same punishment that you would have received. That's biblical justice. There would, be, uh, there would probably be far fewer allegations today if there were these definite and strict consequences to deception. By the way, if you really care about things like hate crimes, if you really care about things like sexual assault, then you'll really hate false allegations all the more because they actually cultivate suspicion regarding real injustices. And that brings us to a third example of how justice relies on truth, and that is that justice waits for the fact. You see that uh, throughout Scripture, that this is part of due process. We see this even in our law today. Proverbs eighteen seventeen: the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. There's this assumption, this, uh, this recognition that you have to wait and, and hear all of the facts. Proverbs 18, 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Take that, social media. John 7, 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? No, of course not. In other words, justice always takes into account things like facts. Justice is dependent upon the truth. Was a police shooting justified? Did a man actually assault a woman? What is the reason for poverty in this case? These aren't irrelevant pieces of data. Unless we can answer these questions, we can't do justice because justice depends on the truth. Justice is also impartial. What is partiality? Well, the Greek word literally means to receive a face. That's an idiomatic expression that basically means to judge on the basis of some attribute other than facts, other than truth. So partiality is to render judgment. Notice I didn't say justice because as we'll see, partiality actually breeds injustice. But partiality is to render judgment on the basis of some attribute, whether that's your race or your gender or your socioeconomic status or your ethnicity or your beauty or your education or your vocation or whatever it might be. And what does the Bible say about partiality? Well, it says quite a bit, actually. We'll look at just a few places. Deuteronomy 16, 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall uh, not show partiality. Even in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5, 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing some things from partiality. Is that what it says? No, it says doing nothing from partiality. In fact, James 2.9 says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Okay, great. So the Bible says partiality is bad. Don't give preferential treatment to the rich or to the pretty or to the famous. So great. I'll just show partiality then to the poor and the ugly and the unfamous. Is that what the Bible's saying? Well, no, it's not saying that. Look at uh, Levitica, Le, Le, uh, sorry, Leviticus 19.15, tongue-tied. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial 
Notice this, to the poor. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Exodus 23, two through three. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Lest you didn't get that, God's word, scripture, says that partiality toward rich or poor, toward the noble or the humble, are both sin. Both of those result in injustice. This is so important for you to grasp, especially in light of today's uh, context and culture, that partiality, preferentiality, prejudice, and judgment is injustice. It is sin, it is serious, whether you show partiality towards whites or persons of color, rich or poor, men or women. This is why lady justice is typically personified not only with scales in her hands, but also with a blindfold over her eyes, signifying that she doesn't see the face. She doesn't see these characteristics so that she's not swayed by anything other than the truth. So that she's not biased and has to recuse herself. She judges not on the basis of the face, but rather on the facts because partiality is injustice. Justice is also proportional. What I mean by that is that the punishment fits the crime. In the ancient world, this was called lex talionis, uh, the law of retaliation. We see it not only in Judaism, but also in uh, multiple ancient Near Eastern cultures. Think of the whole eye for an eye thing, that's lex talionis. So uh, Exodus 21 says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is lex talionis, the law of retaliation. And that uh, law commonly had two functions within culture. Most of the time, its function was to limit punishment. It made sure that your punishment wasn't an overreaction, that you weren't uh, overreacting out of your uh, anger or your passion. So it makes sure that you only charge one eye for an eye, not two eyes for one eye. So for, for example, if I accidentally break your phone, I don't have to give you my house, right? Not to brag or anything, but my house is more expensive than your phone. So one of the functions of the Lex Talionis is to make sure that we aren't over-prosecuting or over-penalizing people, but it also worked the other way. This is something that oftentimes people don't understand. Uh, people often teach that it only uh, limited the uh, amount of, uh, of retaliation, but sometimes it has the opposite function and it makes sure that you're not underreacting. We read this passage before, but I'll keep reading. Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 21. If a malicious witness appears, uh, arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. We stopped there, but let's keep reading. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Notice this, your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So notice again that phrase, your eyes shall not pity. As your anger might cause you to overpunish, so your compassion, so your mercy might cause you to underpunish. And scripture is also gonna warn you against 
that. Now, it's not talking about individual retaliation that you can't forgive somebody. This is talking about justice uh, in the uh, societal sort of sense in terms of the government uh, and so forth. And so scripture is gonna warn us against under punishing. Uh, punishing. Notice the phrase also, the rest shall hear and fear. In other words, there should be this element of justice that has this prohibitive and preventative effect. Part of biblical justice isn't just that you're punishing the perpetrator, but it's also serving as a warning for others to not walk in that same sin. By the way, this is also why the Bible says, I think it's in Ecclesiastes, uh, that you should carry out punishment as soon as possible so that you actually feel the sting of it. So sometimes proportionality uh, demands no more than an eye for an eye. Other times it meant no less. So those are the two different ways that proportionality functions in regards to justice. It cultivates a context in which the punishment is neither too extreme nor too lax. But notice what it also inherently does. It also prohibits uh, imposing penalties of differing severity to different offenders who have committed essentially the same crime. Justice says that if Carl and Tim commit similar crimes, they should receive similar punishments. We shouldn't over-penalize one or under-penalize the other or something like that. But again, the point is that biblical justice is proportional. It neither overreacts nor underreacts. It's like Goldilocks, right? It's just right. It's right in the middle. Justice is also going to be direct. And this is a really big one in light of our uh, culture. In short, what I mean by that is that justice demands that the one who is punished be the one who perpetrated the injustice. Justice demands that the one who is punished be the one who perpetrated the injustice. Now, some might object to this idea because we do see examples in scripture where people are punished because of the sins of their fathers or the sins of the nation as a whole. So what do we do with that? Well, first, I wanna help you to understand that when nations or families are judged in this sense in, uh, in the Bible, we see that they themselves are also guilty of that same sin, the best example of this is uh, in regarding uh, uh, Adamic sin, the sin of Adam. We're all guilty by virtue of what's called original sin. But notice, we're also guilty of individual sins. That nobody is condemned to hell simply because of what Adam did, right? That you're judged on the basis of your own sin, which happens to be in the likeness of Adam's sin as well. You see this also in the prophets and when they talk about how Israel is being judged for the idolatry of their fathers, but you'll notice the prophets will also say, oh, and by the way, we still practice idolatry. So we're being a, a judge for the idolatry of our fathers that we ourselves are still engaging in. So yes, they're confessing the sins of their fathers, but they're also saying that they themselves are guilty of those very sins. Second, and even more importantly, if someone ever tells you that you're judged for the sins of your father or the judge for the sins of your nation or your, your race or your socioeconomic class or whatever it might be, uh, you need to recognize that God explicitly forbids us from judging people in that sort of uh, collective group identity sort of sense. Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And as an implication of that, each one should be judged for his own sin, not for somebody else's sin, your father or your sons or your race or your nation or whatever it might be. Jeremiah 31, 29 through 30, in those days they shall no longer say, 
In other words, even if they used to say this, they shall no longer say this, that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Ezekiel 18, 20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So again, biblical justice is direct. By that, it's mean, uh, I mean that it's concerned with addressing uh, injustice by considering actual individual cases of injustice and punishing those who are actually guilty and rewarding those who are actual victims. So justice, biblically defined, is truthful, it's impartial, it's proportional, and it's direct. Where those attributes are lacking, justice is lacking. We have something, but we don't have justice. In fact, I would argue we have injustice. Well, what about social justice? Let's talk about where that phrase comes from. The best that we can tell, uh, the term social justice was first used by a Jesuit priest, Luigi Taparelli de Azeglio, I don't know how to pronounce his name, in the 1840s. And it was used to refer to the kind of the traditional biblical conception of justice uh, as uh, like articulated by Thomas Aquinas, applied to the legal arrangements of society. Let me boil that down. Basically, whenever this Jesuit priest in the 1840s used the term or coined the term social justice, he just meant that it was just the application of biblical justice, the type of justice we just talked about, Biblical justice within society. So far, so good. That's what social justice originally meant. Unfortunately, words and phrases change over time. We've talked about this before. I've used this example for, uh, before, in fact. Uh, did you know that the word guy originally meant a person of grotesque appearance, right? Did you know that the word nice originally meant ignorant or foolish? So think about that. Next time your friend tries to set you up with a, quote, nice guy, does your friend mean I'm trying to set you up with some uh, ugly fool? Hopefully not, right? Of course not, why not? Because the meaning of those words have fundamentally changed over the years. They no longer retain their original usage. A similar shift has occurred with the phrase social justice, especially since it was married to postmodern political theory starting in the 1970s. And as it did, the meaning of social justice began to shift. The meaning of that phrase began to shift. So what does social justice mean today? The scholar William Young describes or defines social justice as it's used today in the following way. He says, while often an amorphous term, amorphous term, social justice has evolved generally to mean state redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged per, uh, groups to satisfy their rights to social and economic equality. Notice that language of redistribution. In other words, it's not about people having legal opportunities. Social justice is more concerned with material outcomes. Notice it's no longer about individuals. It's not direct, but rather it's about groups. And notice the reference to economic equality, which doesn't mean equality as it's traditionally been uh, uh, held, that is equal standing before the law, but instead means equal outcome by virtue of law. Why is social justice so obsessed with wage gaps and reparations and income equality, inequality and so forth? Because social justice is all about the money. It's all about the money and it's also about power. Traditional equality has meant equal standing under the law, 
But social justice is about more than that. It's about equal coin in the bank. And this new understanding is how the, the, the term social justice is universally used today in academic, academic, political, and the economic world. And yet for some reason, churches today are talking about social justice as, as if it still means what that Jesuit priest meant 180 years ago. So the average Christian, if you're talking to someone and they talk about social justice, the average Christian, if you were to give them that definition, they would say, well, that's not what I mean by social justice. To which you should reply, well, that's what colleges and politicians and economists and philosophers and even the dictionary means. In other words, in the words of the great philosopher Inigo Montoya, I don't think it means what you think it means. Let me be really clear. Justice is a good thing. It's a biblical thing, it's a virtue. But social justice is a bad thing because social justice isn't justice. In fact, social justice is actually injustice. You ever notice how sometimes when you add a word in front of another word, it changes the meaning of that concept? Take marriage, right? Marriage is a gift from God, it's a good thing. But then add the word gay in front of it And no longer is it a good thing. In fact, gay marriage is not marriage. Or add the word group in front of marriage, as in group marriage, polyamory, having multiple uh, wives or husbands. That perverts the fundamental meaning of marriage. Likewise, when you add something in front of the word justice, you typically don't end up with justice, you end up with injustice. This past week, I read an article about a quote-unquote pastor who was running for Senate in Georgia who spoke about how he supported abortion because he was passionate and committed to, quote, reproductive justice. But reproductive justice isn't justice. Neither are most of the forms of racial justice or gender justice or sexual justice or environmental justice or economic or whatever sort of justice that the culture is going to throw out. You need to know that that, uh, arguments hinge on the meaning of words. Satan himself, our enemy himself, is totally fine with you using biblical words as long as he gets to define those words. In fact, the person who can define a word will always win the argument. Much of the hard work of theology is simply spent defining our terms. So Arius, the early church heretic, he would absolutely say that Jesus is God, as do Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. But when we actually define that term, when we actually explain what we mean by the the divinity of Christ, that's where a stark contrast becomes apparent. Christians and LGBTQ proponents will say that we should love homosexuals, but we mean different things by love. We've talked about this a number of times before, but before you can do biblical deeds, you must have biblical definitions. It isn't enough to simply say the Bible says we must do justice. Everyone agrees with that. We have to then define justice because it's really hard for you to fight injustice if you don't know what actual justice entails. Otherwise, your efforts at justice might actually be cultivating injustice. And that's what I think social justice actually does. So let me show you that by looking at those qualities we talked about earlier. Biblical justice is impartial, it's truthful, it's direct and proportional. What about social justice? Well, social justice is partial. In fact, partiality is explicit and intentional. Biblical justice sees a police shooting and asks this question, what were the facts of the shooting? Social justice asks, what was the color of the victim? 
or if someone is alleged to have committed a crime, justice asks this question, is that person guilty? Social justice asks, what is his race? What's his gender? Socioeconomics class, family history. What's the victim's race? What's the victim's socioeconomic status? Imagine you're playing a game of water polo, justice is blindfolded. Social justice is that person that always peaks, right? It's intentionally not blind. In fact, I saw an article recently where someone uh, wrote that auditions for a famous orchestra or symphony, I don't know the difference, Carl will probably correct me later, uh, that uh, auditions for a famous orchestra or symphony should no longer be blind auditions. Why not? Because then we might not have a diverse enough experience. So justice is no longer hire the best man or the best woman for the job, but instead hire the most diverse cast of characters regardless of their qualification. It's no longer that you wanna judge people for the content of their character and not the color of their skin. It is now explicitly, yes, we should judge people by the color of their skin or the size of their bank account. So social justice is not impartial. It's inherently partial. It's inherently preferential. It's inherently prejudicial. What about truth? Biblical justice takes into account the truth. Social justice, like social media, is based on feelings. What are the actual statistics on police shootings? What actually occurred in a sexual assault case? Those don't matter as much to social justicians. Let me give a few examples of this. I've chosen these particular examples only because every single one of these I've seen actual evangelical leaders mention as evidences of, quote, systemic injustice in our society. Most of us are probably familiar with the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson. Hands up, don't shoot. Twitter exploded with hashtags. Uh, BLM uh, erupted in, uh, in protest. The only problem was that it was actually a just shooting. Even Eric Holder, who was the attorney general at the time, who happens to be a black man serving under Obama, said that the officer did not unjustly shoot Brown. That brings us back to something that we said when we talked about race a few weeks back, that every single police shooting that has ever occurred is a tragedy. Michael Brown was a son, he was a friend, he was an image bearer of God. Every shooting is tragic, but not every shooting is unjust. In fact, if you actually look at truth, if you actually look at the data, the overwhelming majority of all shootings, whether of persons of color or white people, are actually just. In other words, people are saying that they want justice for Michael Brown, but biblically justice was already served. As difficult as that might be for us to admit or to feel, that's the truth. But social justice isn't concerned with truth. It's concerned with feelings and assumptions. Or take the idea of wage gaps. Just to give one example of this, but there was a study on the differences in compensation between male and female doctors. And they found that male doctors, on average, received about 25% more pay than their female counterparts. Well, that's unjust, right? That's systemic injustice. injustice. Well, that's what the researchers assumed when they went in But then they also noticed, as they did more research, that on average, those same male doctors worked about 25% more than their female counterparts. So they're getting paid 25% more, but they're also working 25% more. It no longer seems unjust when you actually take into account. Or what about penalties for drugs under a 1986 law? Five grams of of crack triggers a mandatory minimum five-year sentence in federal court. But in order to get the same sentence for powder cocaine, It takes not five grams, but 500 grams. 
And since crack is more prevalent in the black community, powder cocaine's more prevalent in the white community, that's commonly cited as an example of racially motivated laws. However, the data doesn't actually support that. For one, meth, which is also a predominantly white drug, has the exact same federal penalties as crack. And the leading voice for the law was the Black Congressional Caucus, who demanded more severe penalties for the trafficking in response to the 1980s crack epidemic that was destroying their communities. I'm not saying that there aren't unjust police shootings. I'm not saying that some women aren't paid less than they should be or that some persons of color aren't overly prosecuted. I fully believe individual justice still exists and will exist until Christ comes. But that brings out this important distinction between what is called de jure and de facto injustice. De jure injustice is justice that is rooted in the law. You see jure and jurisprudence. De facto injustice is injustice in fact, but not in law. So slavery and Jim Crow laws and apartheid, all of those were examples of de jure injustice. Injustice that's actually codified in the law. Where the law itself is unjust, all right? But someone burning down a house is de facto injustice. It's unjust, but it's also illegal. What social justice does is it confuses those two by saying that de facto injustices, the existence of actual injustices, are evidence of de jure or systemic injustice. And because they misdiagnose the problem, they also misdiagnose the cure. How should you address each? Will we address legal injustices through the law? And America has largely done that. The Voting Rights Act, Fair Housing Acts, Emancipation, all of these things are attempts to correct and eradicate de jure injustice. As a result, I'm unaware, there could be something, but I'm aware of a single example of contemporary de jure injustice in America where the law in America actually codifies injustice and says injustice is good, is right. What about de facto injustice? Well, that isn't codified in laws, but rather in human hearts. As a result of that, the law can't address that. Only something that actually changes the heart, and that's the gospel. But social justice confuses those. It attempts to use the law and government to do what only the gospel can do. I want to correct something I said earlier. I said I'm not aware of any de jure injustices, and I think that's actually incorrect because we've overcorrected, and now there are actual de jure injustices. They're just in the opposite direction. There's impartiality uh, that is uh, practiced, but not in the way that social justice uh, is going to talk about. Instead, it's the exact opposite direction. But here's my point. I could be wrong about these particular examples, My point is not really about police shootings or wage gaps or drug laws. My point is that we always have to be willing to listen to the facts and to research the actual data. But social justice isn't concerned with truth and facts and data. That's why you'll see people saying it doesn't matter if a victim was reaching for a gun or whether other factors contribute to income inequality. Biblical justice is blind, so it's dependent on truths to judge but facts and data are are seen as irrelevant at best or even tools of oppression by social justice. We talked about that a a few weeks ago uh, regarding race. Next, as mentioned, biblical justice is direct. Social justice is not. Social justice isn't concerned with individuals. It's concerned with groups, both in regards to the victims and perpetrators. 
That, that, that's why even though no white person today was involved in antebellum slavery and no black person alive today was enslaved, culture still talks about white guilt by virtue of association within that group because it's all about group uh, identity, not individual acts of injustice. So any unequal outcomes in wealth or well-being or power is never due to individual actions or to differences in culture, or to differences in human abilities, but only due to unjust social structures and systems. This is the underlying presupposition of social justice. Thus, the only way to fix these unequal outcomes for the downtrodden is through social policy. It's never by asking anyone to change their behavior or to change their culture. This comes up particularly when it comes to poverty. Biblically, why might someone be poor? There are at least three reasons. Number one is Oppression, right? Scripture is constantly warning the, uh, the rich to not exploit the poor. By the way, the fact that Scripture warns the rich to not exploit the poor, all, uh, the poor also assumes that the rich do not inherently oppress the poor and they have a choice. Simply by bir- virtue of being rich, that doesn't mean that they necessarily do so, which is what social justice maintains. But that is one cause of uh, injustice. Another one is unfortunate circumstance. All right, there's a bad storm today, Lightning burns your house, right? Catches your car on fire. You lose absolutely everything and you have nothing. And so you're impoverished as a result of that, all right? A third cause though is laziness. Proverbs is full of passages about the sluggard and sloth and how that results in poverty. And last year I was talking to a staff member from another church about these three sources of poverty. And her response was that I was victim blaming for even suggesting that some poverty might be due to individual choices. I didn't say all. I didn't even say most. I just said some. So why was I victim blaming? Because social justice says that all disparity is due to injustice. That's the point. Because it's about group identity. One more example that's really common. I hear people mention that Zacchaeus is a great example of social social justice. Remember him, Zacchaeus, the little leprechaun in a tree? He gets saved. And what does he do? He says, if I've defrauded anyone... I'll give him four times what I took. So people say, that's social justice. But that's not social justice. First, he's willingly doing this. He's not having the government or some other force impose this upon him. He's doing it from his heart and on the basis of the law. Second, he's talking about individual personal guilt. He says, if I have defrauded anyone. Third, he's talking about paying back those who are actually defrauded. Not every single person who's ever been defrauded or every single poor person, let me give you a social justice example of the story of Zacchaeus. Suppose that Zacchaeus defrauded another dude named Gary. All right, we'll call him Gary. Sorry, Gary, you're here. Zacchaeus is a Jew. Gary's obviously a Gentile. Then 100 years later, Gary's great-great-grandson meets another Jew who isn't even related to Zacchaeus and says, you owe me money because someone of your ethnicity defrauded someone in my family that I never even met. That's kind of what social justice does. It's not direct, it's not dealing with individuals, it's dealing with groups. And then lastly, biblical justice is proportional, but social justice is not. Proportional, again, means the punishment fits the crime, but social justice assigns penance even when there is no actual crime. You're guilty of oppression simply by virtue of the fact that you're rich. That's the assumption and the presupposition of social justice. Regardless of how you got rich, You're guilty of racism if you're white, whether you actually harbor any negative feelings toward other races at all, simply because you're white. And it doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime, 
When one man is shot by police, the police officer is arrested, and the response is to riot and protest, resulting in dozens more deaths. How do the deaths of uh, dozens of innocent people solve the problem of the death of one person who may or may not be innocent? That isn't an eye for an eye. Or if you kill a baby in the womb, that's okay. But if you talk about homeschooling your child, or if you want your child to, you don't want your child to transition genders, that's child abuse and you should be arrested. Or that you would lose your job for comments you made 30 years ago that you've already apologized for. Or that speech is violence, but destroying billions of dollars of property and killing people is mostly peaceful protest. Do we need to go on? Because we can. Social justice isn't justice. It isn't based on the truth. It isn't impartial. It isn't proportional. And it isn't direct. Social justice is premised on four steps. Number one, you identify the various groups, typically on the basis of race or gender or sexuality or socioeconomic class. And then you're gonna assess group outcomes, right? Typically on the basis of uh, some sort of economic factor. And then step three, assign blame for disparate outcomes. If you have something different from me, then obviously someone is to blame. Who's to blame? Well, whoever's in power, whoever's doing better. You can blame anyone except the alleged victim because that's victim blaming. Remember that according to this view, any and all disparity is inevitably due to injustice. Therefore, we need step four. That is that you redistribute power and resources in order to address those grievances. Since my group has more and has obviously benefited from oppression and power, we surely shouldn't mind have a little shaved off the top. And if we do mind, that's just evidence of fragility and privilege and pride and greed. In a sense, social justice is about redistribution, but in another sense, it's about more than that. It's about retribution for perceived grievances, whether real or not. So not only does social justice not align with biblical justice, but it also doesn't align with how Western culture, whether biblical or not, has thought of, ju- of justice for hundreds of years. For instance, it confuses uh, the, uh, the issue of rights with charity. It confuses justice with mercy. It also confuses the role of the individual with the role of the state. I've talked about this before. If a drunk driver hits me, I should forgive him. That's called mercy, but the state shouldn't forgive. That's neither mercy nor justice, that's injustice. And this new social justice negates the idea of individual choice. Historically, the government left it to the individual to define what would be good for them. That's why our government was founded upon the principle of the pursuit of happiness in general. And they didn't then define what that happiness is, whether land or money or leisure in particular, because each man's happiness is distinct. If Zach wants to use all of his salary or most of his salary to buy gummy uh, gummy bears and jelly beans, and he does, then he's free to do so. Whereas Jared can buy hair gel or tight pants or whatever it is that he likes to do. And that's fine. That's been the way that the government has understood the pursuit of happiness, that you have a degree of choice in deciding what would make you happy. But social justice says we need to take that choice away and that where there needs to be equality as understood as everyone having the exact same stuff. And then lastly, social justice inherently has to restrict speech. No one with privilege, whether that's privilege of race or gender or socioeconomic status, should enter into any debate because they're blinded. Thus, they should simply give up their power. That's why men 
can't talk about abortion unless, of course, they're supporting it. And whites shouldn't talk about racism unless, of course, they're parroting whatever culture is saying. Going even further, since those with power shouldn't speak, when they do, that's considered a form of oppression and violence. And therefore, there should be a means to prevent them from speaking. And that's what cancel culture does. We'll talk about that more as we talk about outrage culture and victimization in a few weeks. But these are the inherent results of this new vision of social justice. So what's the big deal? What's the problem? I almost titled this, What in the World is Going On in the World? I assume you remember the story of the Trojan horse, right? This nice looking horse left there at the city of Troy. Why not just drag it into the city? Well, because there's death inside. As Admiral Akbar from Star Wars said, it's a trap, right? And the same is true of social justice. So what's inside the Trojan horse of social justice? Well, a lot of things. There's existentialism, there's pragmatism, there's feminism, but maybe the main influences are postmodern thought and critical theory, which are both philosophical presuppositions birthed out of Marxism. Now, even as I say that word, I know that some listening will say, this is just conspiracy theory. I realize that most evangelicals who advocate for social justice would vehemently deny any connection to Marx. And I sincerely believe that many sincerely believe that. They aren't staying up at night, reading the Communist Manifesto, fomenting rebellion in their parents' basement against the bourgeois, although they may be wearing a cool Che shirt or something like that. But most evangelical social justice war warriors would gladly say that they're no fans of Marx. The problem is it's not enough to repudiate the man. You also have to repudiate his ideas. And the problem is that if it acts like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it flies like a duck and it looks like a duck and has duck DNA, it's probably a duck. And that's the case with social justice. The assumptions, the arguments, the answers of social justice are all digested and regurgitated Marxism. So what is Marxism? Well, Marxism is named for Karl Heinrich Marx, who was a German philosopher and political theorist of the 19th century in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, which wasn't exactly a great time to be a laborer. You may be familiar with that. So Marx looks around and, uh, and he concluded that all that ails the world was due to injustice. And that injustice was in the form of oppression. So he divides all of society into two classes, the oppressed and the oppressors. The haves inherently oppress the have-nots. The bourgeois inherently oppress the proletariat. The owners oppress the workers. So the goal is revolution and redistribution of goods. Remember that phrase. Social justice, in its very definition, has the idea of redistribution of goods. And that idea, Marx's ideas, caught on. In fact, it was wildly popular. You might be familiar with some of its proponents, a real who's who of justice. Nazi Germany, communist USSR, North Korea, Cambodia's Khmer Rouge, communist China, Cuba, on and on we could go. What's the result of the Marxist experiment? Not that bad. Just 100 million dead, massive poverty, human rights violations. In every single place it's been tried, whether through socialism or communism. By the way, I saw a sign the other day that said seven things every kid needs to hear. Number one, I love you. Number two, I'm proud of you. Number three, I'm sorry. Number four, I forgive you. Number five, I'm listening. Number six, communism has failed every time it was tried. <laughs> I forget what number seven was. I just stopped reading. Unfortunately, Marxism is the worldview behind social justice. 
This is no conspiracy theory. Black Lives Matter literally says on their website that they are Marxist. Multiple Democratic candidates publicly praise socialism. Even the Southern Baptist Convention, which I love, introduced a resolution saying that critical theory is a helpful tool for understanding culture. By the way, critical theory is applying Marxism to culture in general rather than simply economics in particular, which is how Marx originally used it. So this is the philosophical presupposition driving social justice today. Think of postmodern thought and critical theory as glasses. And those glasses, unfortunately, have a red tint to them. Thus, no matter where you look, you see red. When you look at police shootings, you view that through red lenses. When you think about gender, you see red. When someone asks you about reparations or prison reform or healthcare, whatever it might be, you see red, whether those things are actually red or not. But you can't help it because of your glasses. You've been influenced by these philosophical presuppositions and because this is the current of our culture, unless you're actively swimming against the tide, you're going to subtly drift out to sea. But is that really a bad thing? So, yes, social justice was based on the philosophy of an atheist who hated Western culture. And yes, social justice isn't based on truth or impartiality or proportionality or individuals. And yes, social justice isn't actually justice. And yes, the undergirding philosophy has killed over 100 million and hurt billions more. Is it really that bad? Well, yes. For a host of reasons, I'll just give you two of the bigger ones for the sake of time because we're almost out. First, social justice always ends up hurting the very people that it says it wants to help. You have to understand this. Ideas have consequences and the ideas of social justice are not only antithetical to scripture but also terribly hard on the very ones who are most vulnerable. Social justice says it wants to help women and minorities but quote unquote reproductive justice murders hundreds of thousands of their babies every year. It claims it wants to help the poor, but solutions like riots and defunding the police and 50 years of progressive policies in major cities actually end up making things a lot worse. It says it's for black lives, but not black lives in the womb, not the black lives killed in, uh, and livelihoods ruined in the riots, not black lives killed by other black lives. Social justice says it wants to help the LGBTQ community by removing the stigma and guilt of sin, which are intended to lead to repentance and thus to life and joy. Social justice is all about the victim, but they then presuppose who the victim is and often end up victimizing those who are actual victims, whether they're falsely accused or whatever it might be. In other words, social justice sounds merciful. It sounds compassionate. But a wise man once wrote, there's a way that seems right to man that ends up leading to death. And that's what this does. In fact, I think that the more that you care about justice, the more that you'll despise social justice. And if that wasn't enough of a reason to avoid the assumptions of social justice, let me give you one more particularly instructive for the church. Social justice never offers forgiveness, hope, or healing. It deals only pride or shame. Those who are social justice warriors either think they're doing great They're just crushing it, critiquing all of the racist, homophobic bigots out there. And so they're led into pride and self-righteousness. Or they find their identity in being racist or or, or woke or whatever, uh, anti-racist or woke or whatever, and they boast in that. Or they end up wallowing in unending guilt and shame for the sins of their ancestors or people who happen to look like them. 
But neither pride nor shame are proper responses to the gospel. They are the inevitable results of justification by works. And that's what social justice teaches. Justice comes about from the gospel. The law of God as it's written on our hearts changes not only our lives, not only our hearts, but also the world around us. It changes our homes. It changes our communities. But social justice is justification not by faith, but by works. So with all of this in mind, how should we as the church respond? I'm about out of time. I wanna give just three hopes for our church, for anyone else listening who might be concerned about this theological and philosophical shift in the conception of justice. The first one is just stand firm. Nearly everything I've said over the past hour will be labeled by some, even some Christians, as ignorant, as immature, as racist, as bigoted. I've lost friends over this particular issue. Some of you have lost friends. You've emailed me about that, but stand firm. God is faithful, he's sovereign, his word is true. You have friends and family in the church who love and support you. The second thing is to pursue justice. Yes, social justice is injustice, but justice itself is good and we can do our part to disarm our critics by working for real justice. Not only that, but also by showing mercy, by being generous and gracious, giving of our time and money to support biblical virtues, by adopting kids, by volunteering at a pregnancy advocacy center, by helping the poor and needy, by standing up for the actual oppressed, by serving your neighbor and coworker. So pursue justice. And then lastly, fear not. Even the most just society in the world prior to the return of Christ will never be perfectly just. Sin is too powerful, it's too pervasive, but that doesn't lead us to hopelessness and despair because the hope of the believer is that ultimate justice will prevail. Every single act of injustice, every single one will be accounted for. By the way, this is why the Bible is fine saying there must be two witnesses to some sort of act. Why? Because even if there's only one or there's none, that injustice will be repaid. Because social justice is based on atheistic assumptions, it can't allow that premise. But for the believer, justice is eschatological. So even as our culture becomes progressively unjust, we take comfort as Charles Spurgeon said, justice may at times leave the courts of man, but it abides upon the tribunal of God. Let's pray as Jared comes up and we'll do some questions. Father, I thank you that you are a God of justice, that you care about the poor and the oppressed and the widow and the orphan and the downtrodden. And I pray that you would help us likewise to care about these things. Lord, that we would care about justice, that we would care about mercy, that we would care about truth. Pray that you would help us to stand firm in the midst of a culture that seems to be capitulating and drifting more and more into uh, godless ideologies that are threatening uh, our hope. And, uh, and so we, uh, we love you. And uh, we're grateful that you have loved us and you've given us your word and you've given us your spirit, you've given us the church and uh, you've given us your son. And so we pray in his name, amen.